angry at modern people for losing their faith is kind of like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague is the author of the new book, When Everything's on Fire, Brian Zunn. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you will recognize that voice because BZ is a friend of the show. He's been on many times over the years, and uh, I've always found him to be deeply interesting, thoughtful, and I hope you do too. Now, if you're also a fan of the podcast, you will not recognize this voice because, uh, you know, your boy's got a little bit of a cold. You know, the voice is just not the same. Um, You know, oddly enough, uh, whenever I preach with my voice like this, people seem to like it better, which uh, does wonders for my self-esteem and uh, make me remember the words of my old guy, Sean Adams, who used to talk about how I far too often go up in that higher octave when I get going, and um, I need to stop doing that. So um, anyway, here's my voice for today, uh, but when we start the podcast, it'll be back to normal. And uh, one other thing about the audio quality, there, there's an issue with the app I'm using I use this app called Riverside. It's been helpful. I like some of the video uh, capabilities I have posting uh, videos afterwards from Riverside. But, uh, you know, this is another another issue with the audio. And sorry about that. This audio is just not ideal. But uh, it's all I got. And so next episode, hopefully we'll get back to what it was before. But, uh, yeah, this audio um, isn't the best. And I apologize for that. But I still think you're going to find uh, the subject matter, the content right, to go. be deeply interesting. So without further ado, here it is, BZ, back on the pod. All right, friends, we are very honored today to have our guy Brian Zahn back on the podcast. How you doing, BZ? Thank you, Luke. I'm doing good. It's always good to be with you. I think you were like the first podcast I ever did. I think maybe anyway. That You know, there are, there are a few people who would say that uh, same thing. Very first podcast they ever did. And big fan of yours. Like, I'm glad that uh, you came on the podcast. You've, uh, we, we've had some memorable moments. Uh, I, I believe the snarky comment probably would be the one that is most indelible for most of our listeners. See, I, I think you took that wrong. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Two of the snarkiest people to ever walk the face of the planet are David Bentley Hart and Anthony Bourdain, and I'm a big fan of both. So, bad thing, if handled properly. <laughs> I, I have a picture of me in South Bend with David Bentley Hart, and... Yeah. There, I posted online after we did a podcast, and I, I feel like I tagged it or someone else that said, "Could there be any more snark in one picture <laughs> than me?" I'll, I'll yeah, just maybe he laid hands on you and imparted a a portion of his spirit or something. I don't know. I don't. Well, okay. I'll like I'll take the comparison. You right handled now. it well, though, Luke. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. These are the cards that were dealt. I, it's not about, like, what, I didn't right. choose them. I just got to play them well. And it, it, if I find myself in the company of those two people, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I, you should. Okay, we, we've just established that uh, your church, when the, by the time this mm-hmm. podcast comes out, will have celebrated their the 40th anniversary of your church, the church you're part of's uh, inception, 40 years, which means yeah. your church and I are basically the same age. Right. Yeah, I have a son that's uh, 40. Hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And so 40 and a half. And okay. so, so uh, yeah, my oldest son's your age, and I kind of always look at him and go, ah, that's our church right there. We look about like that. We're 40. And uh, it was a big deal. And it was pretty, I, I think for every for the congregation, it was fun. We mm-hmm. had fun, and it was joyful. And it was that, w- it was that way for Perry and I, too. But we, we found it very emotional. You know, so, I, I don't usually show my emotions much. I keep that under wraps somewhat. Well, it felt like, wow, uh, you know, is Bible for a long time. I mean, we've officially done this a long time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. But, and it, but it was good. It's good emotion. But it wasn't like it's just, you know, marking a milestone. We felt deep gratitude that we made it, you know, because the early days were hard and then some of the middle days were hard, but here we are and, and we feel good about where the church is at. And so we're grateful. So, yeah, I mean, I was 22 when we had our first Sunday morning service. I'm 62. It's kind of a life's work. In some way, um, in some ways, what we've been doing is even older than that because I was leading this ministry at age 17 called the Catacombs. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The catacombs was, this is the Jesus movement days, if anybody knows what that is. This is back when you were called Fry, wasn't it? This is when I was called Fry. Yeah, although I, <laughs> I, I started losing the nickname Fry once I became a Jesus follower, because I just wasn't so fried. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, uh so, so that, that sort of just morphed into our church. I mean, there was a definite moment when we started meeting Sundays, and that's what we mark. But really, the antecedent that was the catacombs was the same people. So in one sense, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult, and that's crazy. It's not something to try to do. I would not recommend it, but it's what happened. It's just, you know, those are the cards that were dealt me, and so we're playing them. But, yeah, yeah. officially 40 years, and we're... We feel grateful and thankful and happy and all of that. There are a lot of people who uh, portray themselves as kind of like church planning coaches these days. And one of the axioms that I've heard, I like how you smirk. <laughs> oh, I wish people could have seen the smirk on your face when I said that. Um, oh, that's perfect. That's the emotion you do show. Uh, that is the emotion we see a lot from you. Um, but one of the axioms that they would say is that 50% of your launch team will be gone in the first two years. I believe that. <laughs> Do you, yeah. I mean, what is the outside of your your nuclear family? What's like the longest standing? Well, yeah, okay, I'll tell that. I'll say this though. I've decided that from now on, when young ministers would be ministers, young church planners come to see me and they want my advice, my sage advice. I'm going to say this: eh, the first forty years are the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, we have we have some of the originals. Uh, we we were, we were having this, uh, you know, we were planning, you know, what we're gonna do, and uh, and they, I guess I'm out of it, you know. But the staff was saying we got to get some OGs. I said, oh geez, what is OGs? Original gangsters, <laughs> and so and so we have some original gangsters, although. I don't think of them as gangsters, but whatever. And uh, so they they were interviewed, and we did a uh, you know a film with them, showed it anniversary Sunday. So yeah, there are people that have been there the whole time. Not a lot, but I mean, there wasn't a lot to begin with. Right? I would say I would you know I don't know about the actual stats, but people join startup churches for various reasons, and. Not all of them are noble, but you need every soul you can get when you're starting, so you'd welcome them, but it's gonna, it's not going to be that long before they figure out that their agenda and your agenda don't mesh, and so they're going to be gone. Um, so Perry and I say sometimes, you know, it's like we're pastoring a parade. You know, people come and go. That used to hurt us so deep. We were more idealistic. We're not cynical at all. We're not that. Uh, we're just more, you know, open-eyed about it. And we just we accept that people are going to come and people are going to go for all kinds of reasons. And so it is what it is. But we are grateful for those that have been with us the whole journey. That seems pretty special. And then there was this moment. I don't know what's wrong with me. There's this moment when they, they were planning this and they had all the names of the people they're going to interview. And I was thinking, yeah, but can't we get some younger people? <laughs> and then I thought, well, wait a minute. How, how young do I want, want them to be? <laughs> if they were 20, they're 60 now. So uh, although there is uh, one of the people that we talked to is only 43. And she's been with us the whole time. Wow. And she remembers. I mean, she remembers being three years old and her mom bringing her and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So The description you gave of pastoring a parade yeah. is um like that's pretty accurate for I, I would assume for many pastors i think that the stats say that in metropolitan areas like the, the average person is at your church for less than four years or three and a half years or maybe even less than that so mm-hmm. pastoring yeah, a parade seems, statistics i didn't know these things but, but uh, anecdotally i say yeah seems about right yeah mm-hmm. i mean you know i'm that's what i do i don't like i don't uh, have you know celebrations for a church like you do all the time, so I'm just reading stats. Um, okay, here's here's what I, I respect about you is that uh, you've written a handful of books. Uh, you've done a lot of great stuff online. I think you're, uh, as the kids would say, your social media presence is really life giving. It has a lot of like thoughtful stuff on there. Uh, that's how I first got in contact with your work. But like the foundation for your work 
is as a local church pastor, as yeah. someone who is like, like when you talk about deconstruction, this is talking about someone who's served a church for 40 years and deconstruction happens on the fly while you're leading a church. Um, when you're critiquing, this isn't like some like internet guru who's telling you like the newest fashionable thing about what, you know, you need to do for your spirituality or your, you know, Christianity. It's like someone who's rooted in a committee, uh, community that's, that's been with you for 40 years. And I, I don't know. I feel like that's why I'm really glad to see the way that people, even since like the seven or eight years that I've known you, like that people find more and more life from your work and get more and more connected to you because you're like not some like internet guru who's like talking out of some ivory tower, but you're rooted in a community. How do you think that that affects your work? Yeah, it does affect it. I mean, it keeps me honest is what it does. Um, Hmm. I I don't want to be I don't want to come across as critical of others that don't do what I do. That's not the point. I can just only speak from my own perspective. I do write books. I've written 10 books in 12 years, right? I think that's right. One of them isn't out yet. I mean, it's complete. It's done. But, you know, you can't release two yeah. books at the same time. Publishers frown upon that. So, so, so I, I write a lot. Uh, and I could, I mean, I'm, I'm at the point where I could just be a writer. Um, I could just do that. And I think it's, in some ways, I think it's, at this stage, maybe, it's the most important stuff I do, that and teaching people how to pray. Um, but if I were just writing, I think that gets to, the, the temptation is then to write for a base, Right for a fan base that already likes what you do and just give them more of the same. Just keep playing the hits. Mm-hmm. That I do do from the position of the pastor of a real church. What I mean by real church is it's just a congregation of ordinary people in kind of an ordinary mid-sized city in the middle of America that everything kind of comes from there. That's where it begins. And that keeps me from becoming a caricature of myself, playing to a fan base and not really growing and becoming, in fact, maybe more narrow. Because you, you understand, okay, this is what they want. I'll give it to them. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. I don't know if I communicated it very well. It's not something I articulate very often to speak like that, but I do sense that. Yeah. No, I, I think it makes perfect sense to me. I, I can imagine if, you know, 10 books in 12 years, like that's, that's a lot of writing. Um, but it's unique to me that you said like some of the most valuable work you do is writing, which some would divorce from your work as a pastor. Uh, obviously you also said your, your work on teaching people to pray, which we've talked about uh, a few times on the podcast. Uh, so I really do appreciate that as well. Why do you think the, uh, the writing in, conjun- in conjunction with the prayer is the most important stuff you're doing right now? Hmm. I don't. I don't know if I can say why I feel that. I just do feel that. I think it's maybe the communication I get, the feedback. People mm-hmm. tell me how the books have helped them. Um. I mean, I could. I. I. You know, my church would be alarmed if they heard me say this. Maybe they will. Who knows? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I have no plans of going anywhere. I'm right here. But I could. I could imagine myself. It, it's easier to imagine myself not preaching every Sunday at Word of Life Church than it would be for. I mean, not writing. I mean, that's just going to keep going as long as I'm, you know, can, can think coherently enough to write. I'm probably going to write because I, I, I've come into that state. And I think it's good. I didn't write any books until I was 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not, in fact, that's not entirely true. That's, that's actually a bit of a deception. I did write two, but I don't claim them anymore. <laughs> so, and that's the point. That's kind of the point. Um, there really, I mean, maybe it's overworked, overemphasized, maybe it's a fad, I don't know, but there is something to stage of life and understanding what you're supposed to be doing at a certain period of time. I couldn't have given the time to writing I give now, although in one sense, I don't feel like I give that much to it. I don't know. It's, it's, I don't, I don't find it hard to write one book in a year. That's, that's pretty easy or whatever. Um, but I, still, I don't think it would have been, I couldn't have given really any time to writing 20 years ago. Uh, it wasn't that stage of life. 
I mean, let's be honest. I don't, I don't run the church as it were day to day. I mean, I'm doing a funeral tomorrow. I spent the day preparing for that. I do a, but I have a team of people that really help me. But you don't start that. You don't start from there. I mean, if you can do it in pastoral ministry, I promise you, I've done it. So I've done everything, and I've reached the stage where I can kind of focus on what I think I should be doing. And that's, that's a good place to be at. And yeah, so yeah. I, I just I do. I think that writing is the most important work right now. That and, as I said, helping people learn how to pray well. I just did a hmm. prayer school. I did my 85th prayer school Friday and Saturday in Oklahoma City at a Methodist church there. So I'll keep doing that too. Simply, I mean, for no other reason, I know it helps people. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I have enough experience now, and I've heard from hundreds and hundreds of people of how it, to use a cliche, changed their life, preserved their mm-hmm. faith. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep doing that. That's good. That's good. Okay, just okay. I just need a number. So you've done uh, what do you say, 89 prayer schools? 85. Right? 85. 85. You did one uh, for a group from the Church of Christ at uh, Pepperdine University a couple years ago. Of the 85, like what ranking would you give the Church of Christ in terms of how good are we at praying? I do remember it. I mean, they kind of all morphed together. I remember, I don't remember anything about it other than the venue. I remember the venue. Okay. This chapel and all. And Do you, uh, do you remember when you slandered me at, as uh, kind of your intro? Because like, I, I remember I that part. You not. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. Well, then let's just talk about this book. Um, because it doesn't have anything about bitterness for me, but there is other stuff that's very applicable uh, for me in the book. Um, okay. When I started the podcast probably uh, eight years ago, I, I, I think early on I, I was fortunate enough to get to talk to you and have you on the podcast. And early on in the podcast, I was talking a lot about deconstruction yeah. because I was probably 32, 33 at the time. It was what I was going through. And I find myself at a stage where I'm not as interested in deconstruction as much as I'm interested in and in trying to find a sustainable faith and helping people navigate right. faith in the modern world, which means that you make sense of like a lot of questions going on around. And when you talk about deconstruction in this book, you, uh, you tell about, you were in Paris when, um, how we say Notre Dame wrong. There it is. But like the fire at the cathedral of, at Notre Dame. Thank you. I wanted you to say it that way because I say it like a football fan. Notre Dame. Well, Notre Dame is the university in Indiana. The cathedral in Paris is Notre Dame. Yeah. I know, but I just don't ever say it right, and I wanted you to say it. So, yes, you <laughs> okay. were reading the book. You're on the oh, – okay. Let me pick a bone with you. You tell a couple stories, and you're like, oh, these are just parables afterwards. I feel like I, I want to, to know the parable up front because I got connected to our friend you, who turns out to you doesn't really exist. Um, no, that's a true story. It really exists. Yes, that actually all happened. It's oh. also a postmodern parable, but it's all factually, historically true. Really? Because, okay. Really, really, yes. All right. You okay. was this kid, maybe 22, on the train with me in Paris on the day that Derrida died. Now, this wasn't a flight of fancy. This isn't me engaging in fiction. It is a true story that also, I think, doubles as a, it, I call it a postmodern parable. But it's yeah, a no, great parable. A, a real event. Okay, because it was such a good story. I thought, oh, no, you just made that up afterwards, and you didn't no, tell that. No, no, okay. it's a real thing. It happened. Okay. You, sometimes you got to dumb it down to my level. Like, I need very direct <laughs> sarcasm. Like, that's how I, I understand it. I say, let me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to check into the book here. I'm, I've got it here. Uh, it's like the first sentence in the paragraph in the, new he- the next heading of it. I was in Paris on the day Jacques Derrida died. Yeah, I know, I'm... Maybe it's, maybe it's the, the chapter right before it. Okay. Um, the last paragraph of Deconstructing Deconstruction on page 33. Okay, so he's, deconstruction he's seems to be a methodology that has no real end game. At times it feels like an invitation to endless cynicism. If as Christians all we do is deconstruct, we eventually wind up in a world without any more Easter's. And a world without Easter is a world without hope. A world on the precipice of nihilism. If the story of a pastor testing his atheism on a Sunday after Easter is a postmodern parable, which is a true story I tell earlier in the chapter, I have another true, <laughs> story, another true story that is also a postmodern parable, and it happened on the day that Jacques Derrida. Okay, so you had the word true in there. Um, you just got to read really cl- carefully. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. it, it right. really happened. 
Okay. I, again, I was saying that because it's such a good story. I thought, oh, no, he... It is. Okay. It is a good story, and it, and it happens, a real one. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, the cathedral burns down, and like that becomes, in some ways, another metaphor, parable, um, for what's happening. Yeah. And you say, there's an earlier line in the book uh, where you said there's something to the extent of, like, you can't blame people in this day and age... Um, what did you say? Uh, angry at modern people for losing their faith is kind of like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. That's what it's. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. So tell us why we shouldn't be angry at ourselves or for others. I don't think we should. I don't think anger is going to help anything. Uh, uh, I mean, th- there is a real phenomenon. That's why I start early on in the book with Nietzsche, mm-hmm. who I respect. I even like, I like Nietzsche. I've read a ton of Nietzsche. Lord knows why, but I have. And I think part of why I've read him, the series I've read him so much. First of all, he's just a really good writer. I mean, that Nietzsche props. He's a good writer. And so he's engaging in that sense. I just, I think I knew very early on, this is an important person. And he, as much as anyone, would be the critic that we need to give reasonable answers to. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche was a prophet. He foresaw what was coming. He foresaw it as clearly as anyone. He understood that we were hurtling another age where God would no longer be the organizing principle at the heart of Western society. When, when he announces, I'll, I'll just get a little of this. So he has this parable of the madman. Mm-hmm. Where a man walks into a village on a sunny morning, holding a lantern and crying out, I seek God. Whither is God? I cannot find God. And the villagers begin to laugh at him. And then he says, I'll tell you where God is. God is dead. And we have killed him. And smashes the lantern because they're laughing at him. And he's, before he smashes the lantern, he says, oh, I see I've come too soon. My time is not yet. And he smashes the lantern, goes into the churches, and sings a requiem for God. Now, what Nietzsche's doing here, Nietzsche's not just made for atheism, although he was an atheist. He was also a PK. And that that's that tell you a lot right there. Pastor's uh, Keenly attuned to hypocrisy, because PKs are attuned to that. So he's he, he thinks it's time. He understands that by the time you're into the late 19th century in Western Europe, people are already functioning as atheists. They just, their, their, their professed theology hasn't caught up with how they actually live. That God is no longer at the center of their life, but they are just keeping up appearances because of how. Mm-hmm. And this is the same thing that Kierkegaard saw in critique. Nietzsche, though, is not like modern new atheists, as they're called. You know, Thank God. God. Bennett, Harris, people like that. He's not cavalier about it. In fact, Nietzsche is very anxious. He does think that it's time for humans, uh, for humanity, to take this bold leap and move on without God and become gods themselves, to stride the world as gallant gods and through a violent will to power, bring greatness to pass. He believes all of that, but he is in no way sure it's going to work out. And he he's afraid that if they don't succeed in that project of being the overman, the superman, that the other alternative without God is what he calls the last man. This incurious entertainment adult utilitarian who desires nothing more than a little bit of prosaic happiness. And the way he describes the last man, it's something like what we call a couch potato. The last man uh, blinks... The last man says, we have invented happiness and blinks. <laughs> and uh, so so Nietzsche hoped for the Ubermensch. Well, the Ubermensch, I mean, I know this is going to sound, you know, for the Nietzsche apologists out there. First of all, I just want to say, I do know my Nietzsche. I've read him and I respect him. I've already said that. But Nietzsche's Ubermensch turns out to be a Nazi. I mean, it was the Nazis who read Nietzsche. And took him seriously. Now, I'm not saying Nietzsche would have been in favor of a genocidal holocaust against Jewish people. I don't think he was an anti-Semite. 
But I don't know what he thought was going to happen. As, as the Nazis read Twilight of the Idols, Beyond Good and Evil, uh, Antichrist, H.H. Homo, these kind of books, as their canonical texts and sought to live according to them. I mean, they're the ones that actually tried to live it. And if and what I would want to say to Nietzsche is I said, well, really, did you really think that with your dark destination, with a violent will to power, that it was going to end otherwise than with death con- death camps and a continent in ruins. So Nietzsche, and I don't put this in the book. I should have put it in the book. I'm kind of kicking myself. Nietzsche has this lament. He says, 2,000 years and no new God. <laughs> well, what, what I want to say, Nietzsche, is no new God is coming. This is the accomplishment of Christ. Christ has cleared the field of all rival deities, all gods. So that, and I'm, I'm just putting my cards on the table, I think, and I think Nietzsche would agree, that now we're at the point where it's, it's Jesus or what? Jesus or what? Nietzsche hoped for the, over, the overman, the superman, you know, humanity striding the world as gallant gods. But that didn't work out, and I don't think it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. So it's Jesus or what he feared was the dark abyss of nihilism. Where there's no meaning, and because there's no meaning, I you know stay stoned and happy or comfortably numb or have a big screen television or something like that. You know, maybe Ted Lasso will save us. I don't know. Uh, don't don't we don't disrespect Ted Lasso on this podcast. <laughs> I, but, I, but 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 your but, nihilism you, know, you got to have something more to live for than that. But your your nihilism leads to what you call the couch potato, like his. That's what he, that's how he describes the last men, and so that's kind of the, the reality of my last thing. This, this is if we don't get the Ubermensch, the Superman, then we get the last man, which is his is the final development of a failed humanity. Okay, so that's what. So Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche saw the time we were. So so look in, in eighteen eighty in um, the gay science, but joyful wisdom that book. He gives the parable of the madman. God is dead. Uh, in one sense, and it was designed to be so, and it especially would have been so in, you know, late 19th century Europe. But by the time you get to 1966, Time Magazine's putting the question on its cover, is God dead? And, well, God is dead in the sense that God is no longer presumed to be the organizational center of society. That aspect, that aspect of Christendom, we'll put it that way, that aspect of Christendom is dead. It, 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 death throws in America in the form of culture wars, but I still know how it ends. Christendom is dead, and it's, it's not going to have a revival, so Christian faith is going to have to be other, which is part of what is driving uh, what we call deconstruction. I'm not a big fan of the term because I, I know what Derrida actually means by that, and I don't think it's really that applicable, but okay. It's, it's the term in vogue. Okay, so, so part of what is driving, it's not the only thing by any means, but part of what is driving the deconstruction phenomenon is that people really are done with Christendom. And inflation of Christian faith and imperial agenda that that in its death throes in America is taking on the form of an amped up religious nationalism. People see that for what it is and they're done with that, but they don't understand that that isn't authentic Christian faith to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I've seen is that this deconstruction phenomenon tends to be an evangelical phenomenon. Yep. And I've seen evangelicals, lose their Christian faith, but remain evangelical. (laughs) In that, they seem to still hold on to the idea that the only authentic expression of Christianity is an evangelical form. So it's either it's evangelicalism or bust, to which I'm going to say, well, hold on here. I mean, evangelicalism is a very modern and mostly American phenomenon of Christian faith. There is a whole wide ecumenical breadth and historical length of other expressions of Christian faith that maybe before you just throw away everything, you might go explore some of those. Yeah. 
you better jump in here or I'm just yeah. going to be let, like let me doing my let book. Let me jump in. <laughs> well, it, it's good stuff. And I, I really appreciate the way that you engage with Nietzsche because it seems that for most of I like us, Nietzsche. You, I, do, I like the guy. I like Well, him. I think we just, if you're going to engage with someone's work, don't create a scarecrow argument and just use what you right. want to use about him. Actually, listen to what the person says. Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. And I don't think we do that. I think what let, you let, help. Let me, tell, let me tell a story about Nietzsche that it's not in the book. Okay, I, I was going to put it in there, but it just didn't fit, didn't work. Nietzsche's, you know, Nietzsche died in 1900, but he lost his sanity in 1890 and never recovered. Okay. The moment of his descent into madness occurred in Turin. He was living in Turin, Italy. And a, a, cab, a cab driver, a carriage driver, you know, this is horse and buggy stuff, was beating a horse mercilessly. And... Nietzsche flings his arms around the horse to protect it from the fury of this driver that was beating this horse. And that that moment seemed to trigger something, and he covered his sanity. That's the Nietzsche I want to remember. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I pray, re- remember, remember that moment. And what's really strange is this is a moment right out of... Uh, Dostoevsky. I don't think Nietzsche read Dostoevsky, but Dostoevsky saw this happen one time when he was a child, and he puts it in several of his novels in various forms. Of so he was actually living out an incident that's in a couple of Dostoevsky novels, and that was kind of his last act before his in the madness. But it's a, it was an act of grace, of kindness, of even a form of self sacrifice. And uh, so that's that's how I remember Nietzsche before God, and I believe there's a lot that God can work with right there. <laughs> yeah, so so in the book, you kind of imagine uh, like an ideal lunch to have with him. And at first you yeah. think it's with you yourself, and then you realize, no, you yeah. need to call in some help, which my first thought was you were going to just play the movies, God is Not Dead, and that would solve all of his crisis. <laughs> you, know, um, I've never, that, you know, I've never seen it. You know, well, I mean, I just, I'm just not attracted to those kinds of things. What? Okay, what how much? Mm, I've never seen them either. Okay, let's just keep going. <laughs> mm, no, okay, I'm going to take the bait. How if they said, Brian, we want you to endorse the next God is not dead movie uh, in your church? How much money would they have to give to your favorite charity for you to go for Look, it and never tell I'm anyone? Not, I'm not. I'm not for sale like that. I mean, for, okay, I'm for hundred thousand dollars, you would. Terrence Malick. I'm all about Terrence Malick. <laughs> okay. Those are the films that I want people watching. Okay, so you're not giving him, uh, you know, a uh, marathon of God is not dead one, two, three, or four, or five, or however many there are now. Instead, the, you want to connect. Those are what I call pop apologetics, and they don't work because they're. This is in the book because they're built on the wrong foundation. They think, okay, let's all just find some aspect of empiricism that we all agree on, and then we will quote prove the Christian faith. It's a fool's errand. It's it's actually a rigged game. If you accept the terms that all that can be known can be known through the process mm-hmm. of some sort of amplification of the five senses, you've already rigged the game so that you're in the end are going to disprove Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Right? So I no, I don't. I think pop apologetics they 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 soothe nervous but not very thoughtful Christians, and that's about all it does. How many people it, have converted to Christianity by losing an argument? I think it's somewhere between one and zero. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't even know who the one would be. <laughs> I've heard uh, from people in the Christian publishing world that apologetic books are written uh, for those who are already believers, not so much yeah. for those who are not. And that's you know, this book about. is tagged in the Christian apologetic category, which actually I don't mind. I, I just I, don't want it to be of that certain ilk. I mean, I think of David Bentley Hart as a great Christian apologist, but it, he doesn't sound like well, shall we say Ken Ham, and there's others that I'm not going to name because they're, I'm just not going to yep. name them. Well, you, you mentioned Ken Ham in the book, so you can go ahead and say them on the podcast. Because he deserves all the, I mean, <laughs> he can't take him seriously. But Tom Wright, yeah. Simply Christian, is his apologetic, I think. So um, in the true truer sense of what, anyway, uh, all that to say. We're, we're, we're not, talking about lunch with Nietzsche. Yeah, you're not bringing him uh, those those movies. Uh, I love that I couldn't just make that joke and move on, that you had to respond to that, and I respect that about <laughs> you. Um, instead, you're bringing him Kierkegaard, right? 
And you say the difference between these two existential philosophers is that while Kierkegaard believed that within the dry husk of Christendom, there was the living seed of the word of God. Nietzsche believed that Christianity was nothing but an empty shell. To put it very simply, in his criticism of Christianity, Kierkegaard still believed in Christ, while Nietzsche did not. In the end, Kierkegaard took the better road. So there is a critique that Nietzsche brings up for us of, hey, this is where things are going. Christendom is not working. It's not going to last long. In that way, it is dead. But Kierkegaard helps him see the one thing that he's missing, which is the hope of the resurrection, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and Nietzsche will... Um, put your faith to the test by not believing it. Kierkegaard would say, put your faith to the test by living it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both responding to what they see as a deep hypocrisy in Western society mm-hmm. that still thought of itself as that's gone in Western Europe. The vestiges of it are hanging on a little bit in America. But this, this is, uh, and this is what Kierkegaard's leap is about. It's not a leap of faith. It's a leap to faith, where, um, and the leap is actually a decisive act to say, without any way of justifying what I'm doing rationally, I am going to take Jesus at his word and live accordingly. It says something like this. He says something to the effect that if anyone wants to know whether my teaching comes from God, then they need to live it. If they live it, then they'll know whether my teaching is from the Father. But you, you're not going to be able to sit around and uh, ponder it in your head. And I, I spent a whole chapter in the book about the problem of being all alone upstairs inside our head. And, and that as much as anything, that as much as anything, that defines modernity. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm very fa- I mean I try to understand I want to understand the time in which we live and it's hard to understand the time in which you live because it's the only time you've lived in yeah. and so you have to really work at getting a more historical perspective uh, but we're living in a unique epoch you know it began in the middle of the it began with thinkers in the middle of the 17th century but it's now pretty much arrived to all of us at least in the West. In over the last, you know, half of the 20th century. And so it's a challenging time. It is. And part of this time is that we live in our head and we think belief ultimately is about being able to connect the dots on things that seem illogical to us instead of belief as a way of life. Instead of trying to just mentally ascend to things that we can understand, belief is this way of life that we enter into. And so going back to our beloved cathedral that burnt down, which you say much yeah. better than me, I'm going to call it Notre Dame, because again, <laughs> I live in America. You you make a connection to this, to deconstruction that happens. And here's, here's the line from the book, uh, one of the ones that I really connected to, where you say, renovate what needs to be renovated, throw away what needs to be thrown out, deconstruct what needs to be deconstructed, and even let some of it burn, but don't burn it all down. And I think that's what seems to happen with so much of deconstruction is that we just burn it all down and think, well, I'm just going to throw it away. And then what happens? All of a sudden you're left with nothing. And faith is not something that you just um, think about or occasionally entertain. It's, it's a way of life that you enter into. But when we burn it all down, you, you got nothing to, to, to yeah, experience. I mean, it, it is. It's just, what? And I, I seriously do want people to engage with, well, okay, seriously, what? Mm-hmm. Um. I, I would have put this line in the book, too, but I didn't read it until after the book was done. It comes from Rene Girard, who I've read a lot of, but I hadn't seen this one until quite recently. And, and Rene Girard was great at little pithy, brief sentences that get to the point. I love this one. He says, uh, Voltaire and his successors only criticize Christianity with Christianity. Many... In the angry, exvangelical, empty the pews kind of moment, movement, whatever it is, uh, at the heart of their critique, it Christianity isn't Christian enough. A little bit lacking in self-awareness that really that which they are critiquing, they gained from 
an ethic derived from Christianity. I mean, if you think that love, if you think that equity, if you think that justice, if you think that kindness, if you think that humility, if you think that honesty, if you think these things are really important, where did that come from? That did not come from the pagan world. That came from the world. And so in one sense, those that are most angrily deconstructing or demolishing or attempting to do so with Christian faith, their, their critique really is, you Christians aren't Christian enough. Maybe we just humbly say, you're right, pray for us. <laughs> We're trying. Yeah. yeah, But the critique itself is a, is a proof of the power of Christianity. Well, yeah, I mean, the ability to, to critique Christianity as it's mostly done is with tools that are the gift of Christianity to society. But they're, we're so pervasive that we, we don't realize that there was a time when these didn't exist, when we didn't think this way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's changed things. And any book by Brian Zahn, you want to say something, I can see it in your face. Um, okay, any book by BZ is going to have a reference to Dostoevsky. And I, again, I feel like insecure saying the name. Can you say it for me just so that Dostoevsky. I... Dostoevsky. Yeah, see, it sounds... I, I'll, usually say, I'll usually say Fyodor Dostoevsky, but it's actually Fyodor. Fyodor Dostoevsky. Huh. Okay, I'm just going to trust you that yours is way better <laughs> than mine. Um, so any book with you is going to have a reference to that. Of, of like the last tw- 10 that have come out, I mean... Oh, well, I mean, he is, he is one of my... You know, he's like a pole star. He's a guiding light. And I don't... I'm like set out to say, okay, I got to work in some Dostoevsky. It's just, you know, as I write, that's what comes out because it's really in me. I mean, Dostoevsky it's, is a prime source in my life. That's not a bad source. That's, I, no, someone, it, uh, no, it's really not. It's really good, in fact. We, we have uh, comments on during our uh, live stream services, which is uh, an adventure in itself. And one person said, um, oh, I can't wait to hear which uh, Tom Wright quote Luke uses this week in his sermon, <laughs> which, uh, like, I take that as a compliment. Like, so we, we Look, all have our people. I mean, you know, if, if the worst comment you ever get is you quote N.T. Wright too much, well, you can live with that. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've got a few worse than that. Okay, but uh, so we have this reference. And one of the things that I've heard you say a lot, and I didn't honestly know the backstory, is the line, beauty will save the world. And... I need you to give the backstory. Like, tell the story, which is going to be way better than any recapitulation I can do. All right. So, uh, Dostoevsky in eighteen sixty something or maybe eight. I'm not sure exactly. Was writing his novel, The Idiot. The premise of The Idiot. Well, it, the, the the protagonist, the central character, is Prince Mishkin, and Prince Mishkin is a. Well, he's an attempt on Dostoevsky's part to create something of a Christ figure. Mm-hmm. He, he is unconcerned with the conniving aspirations of St. Petersburg, Russia, elite society, mm-hmm. with all of their insecurities and trying to outdo one another. He just isn't caught up in that game, and, he ten- and he's, so he's, he genuinely loves and he's uh, giving, and he's not conniving, and he's honest, and he's not duplicitous. And so he's called an idiot 40-some times in the book. I mean, last time I read it, I just how they have every time someone refers to him as an idiot. He's not an idiot. He's a Christ figure. And there's this one scene where the uh, nihilist, Ippolito, a young suicidal nihilist, they're at this party, Lots of parties in, in uh, you know, the Russian high society. Okay. And uh, Ippolit is making fun of, of uh, Prince Mishkin. And he just sort of out. He says, and, and this, you've not heard this before. This just comes out of nowhere. He says, uh, Prince Mishkin, is it true? You won't say that beauty will save the world? Gentlemen, gentlemen, Prince Mishkin here says that beauty will save the world. Uh, Michigan, are you, are you some sort of Christian? That I've heard that you're a Christian. Do you really believe that? Be- what kind of beauty will save the world? And and he's I didn't quote it exactly right, but it's something like that. 
And I have the quote in front of me, and you're very good into the last sentence. Okay, so so he's making fun, and and Prince Michigan doesn't respond. It's kind of Jesus before Pilate, you know. He just doesn't say much. And what's interesting is this is a complete. You could take that little paragraph out of the book, and it wouldn't affect it at all. But this is the line that, from its publication, captured the imagination of thinkers philosophers and theologians around the world up to this day, beauty will save the world. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn was given the Nobel Prize for Literature, he built his entire Nobel lecture around that phrase. And, and Solzhenitsyn said, it's, it's not a riddle, it's a prophecy. And uh, I, I just, I, I think, it, what's interesting is that Dostoevsky, when he's writing nonfiction, and he did, he did write some nonfiction, when he's just directly trying to say, here's what I think, here's what I believe, it's not very good. He's a bit of a bigot, uh, and he's kind of comes across as harsh. But when he allows himself to create these other characters, somehow he taps into something that is much greater than himself. And it, his Example of Elder Zosima. I mean, Zosima, I mean, my goodness. He's one of my favorite theologians, and he's a vicious creation out of Dostoevsky's imagination. Actually, my favorite part, probably, of, I don't know, but maybe favorite part of when everything is on fire is carry on what I think is happening in the Grand Inquisitor. And how, okay. the uh, how I think that, 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 uh, okay, I've got to get my names here right. You're, it's the, the, the brother uh, of the brother of uh, I got I, I've got to get out of idiot into <laughs> brothers Karamazov. Um, Ivan is trying to you know, destroy the faith of his novice and creates this tale of Jesus appearing in Seville during the Inquisition and how finally the Grand Inquisitor arrests Jesus and is going to burn him at the stake and all that transpires. I'm not going to give it away because I wouldn't do it justice. I, I really like that book. And I felt good. I mean, sometimes you read your own work and you go, I like that. That's good. That's the part of the book that I thought that was good. <laughs> okay. Because I'm not as good of a person as you are which I think my listeners knew that already. But there's a scene like in that Inquisition where it ends with, with a kiss. And yeah. I, I love the reticence of uh, the author to not feel the need to speak the words of the Christ figure and instead just to let there be silence and a kiss. And there is... Yeah, in, a, in the parable, I understand it, it is a piece of fiction written as a piece of... It, it's a fiction, fiction within... It's, it's Ivan, the atheist, trying to destroy the faith of his novice monk brother, Aloysia. And, and Jesus is at the center of it. Jesus never speaks except one time when he raises the little girl from the dead. He quotes the Mark text. Talitha Kuhn, you know, which is, he just quotes you know, the Aramaic there out of Mark. The only time that Jesus seems to act on his own is when he kisses his inquisitor. And I talk about what that kiss means and all of that. But it seems as though the kiss, it, it's, Ivan seems to lose control of Jesus. And Jesus seems to, within the story, take the initiative and act on his own. And I think in some ways, the Dostoevsky yep. lost control. It's as if Christ comes alive in this story and acts as Christ would act. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, then, and then how Aloysia, what he does to his brother's attempt to destroy his faith, kiss his brother. I don't know if I put this part in the book, but the thing that what happens next is uh, Ivan cries out, plagiarism! Because <laughs> <laughs> if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, so in a world of deconstruction where mm-hmm. Nietzsche predicted and prognosticated this is where things are going, and we can deconstruct everything because we see a shell of what Christianity is supposed to be, that hope that Kierkegaard has is there for us and it is beauty that ultimately that will save us and yeah so so here's another part that's not in the book um 
giving you all the parts that's not in the book. You all can read. There's the a book. lot of good uh, stuff in the book, listeners. There's a lot of good stuff in the book. I, even though I he's, mean, I'm 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 proud of the book. If I can just, you say should that. be about it. Um, back to beauty, save the world. Um, Dostoevsky was writing a letter to his brother, and then he said, "If it should be shown to me, prove to me mathematically." That's what how he said it. Prove to me mathematically that Christ is outside the truth, and truth is outside of Christ. I would rather be with Christ than with the truth. Hmm. Now, I think I understand that. I'm going to try to unpack because I agree with it. Okay. Uh, Simone, Simone Weil, you know, important Jewish Christian philosopher, whatever, mystic, I guess, would be the best description for Simone Weil. She really disagreed with that. She didn't like that. I agree with it. By that I mean, I do not think that Christ is outside the truth. But what I do think is I trust my ability to recognize beauty more than I trust my ability to discern truth. I mean, hopefully I can discern both, and I don't think there's any contradiction. But there are some things in life, maybe very few, maybe only one, that's too good not to be true. And I believe it's the beauty of Christ. And I just can't believe that the beauty that is Christ is a fiction. That, that it is so beautiful, I think it has to correspond with some form of reality. Okay, now I could really go into philosophy here. This is where I'm a realist and not anomalist. I, I think that there is something behind all of that. And if I think evangelism, if, when you use that word, and I'm kind of days, um, I, it, it's not about a sales pitch. It's about just faithfully communicating the beautiful story of Jesus. And that's really where my hope for the survival or even flourishing to some extent of Christian faith in this era lies in that I, I think that Jesus himself remains so beautiful that if we will just allow the story to be the story, people are going to be attracted to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miguel you- de Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, he said, it is the charm and prerogative of beauty to win hearts. You know, I mean, where, you know, there's the good and the true and the beautiful. The, the transcendentals, the Greek philosophers, said we want the good because it's good. We want the true because it's true. We want the beautiful because it's beautiful. They don't have to serve some other utilitarian self-justifying. Church fathers come along and say, yeah, the good, the true, and the beautiful because they're attributes of God. And the church has done a lot with Christian aesthetics. I mean, no, with Christian ethics, a definition of the good in the light of and Christian apologetics, we've touched on that, defending the truth of Christianity or defending truth as Christianity. The church has not done as much with Christian aesthetics. It's been hit and miss. Sometimes, you know, we've done things with that, but oftentimes we just sort of follow the lead of the culture and regard it as mere adornment. But at our present moment, I think it's the, really the only way forward. I'll put it real simple. This is put it simple. In an age when the wider society is deeply suspicious of any claim to a superior ethic or to ultimate truth, beauty is the way forward. To make it even more simple, if we position ourselves in the marketplace of ideas saying, hey, we have absolute truth and we know what's good for you and we meet at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, <laughs> we're going to be met with a lot of indifference. Mm-hmm. Beauty can sneak. If we can embody enough of the beauty of Christ in our lives that people could begin to say, I know this sounds like a stretch, but bear with me, that, that there would be some that would say, well, say what you want about those people. I don't know that I agree with them. I don't know that I believe what they believe, but they're living beautiful lives. Really, this, this is how the church grew in its early centuries. Mm-hmm. Not by what we think of evangelism. They, they didn't do that. They just, they just went about the business, living a life formed around Christ that 
pagan Romans began to find increasingly beautiful and decided they might want to be a part of that. So that's if I, I have eight grandchildren now, and they live, all of them live a mile from me. So they're over here all the time. In fact, one of them was just here a moment ago. I heard him upstairs. And if I have, if I have a that my grandchildren, as they come into their adult years, will share the faith that I have, it's because the king of hearts is just so beautiful. Angle them into believing, you know, through clever arguments or through, you know, you've got to accept this tradition, certainly not through any kind of threats of, you know, judgment and all that. I just, I'm just going to let Jesus, I'm going to keep enough of the story of Jesus present to them that I think they'll be attracted. That's a good word. A line from uh, Pascal from the book. You say, or you quote him saying, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Yeah, I, I pit that against Descartes, who they were contemporaries and intellectual equals. Descartes, you know, I'm kind of diff- I'm kind of a, a little bit hard on Descartes. Uh, I think Descartes is wrong about some things. Now he's a good guy. He, wa- he wasn't trying to undermine Christian faith. In fact, he said in a letter to his publisher with the publication of the Discourse on Method, he, one of his objectives was to prove the existence of God, which is stupid, but, but that was what he was. And so he begins by saying, okay, I'm going to find it. He's looking for epistemological bedrock. Hmm. What can we hold on that we, actually, that we actually know? We know this. Yeah, I doubt everything. And he's sitting around, he's thinking, I can doubt, I can doubt that, I can doubt, I can, I can doubt everything. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But in the process of doubting, I am thinking, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And he reached epistemological bedrock, and he starts building from there. Well, okay. I have no, and this is this is the beginning of the modern scientific method, of which I have, I, I, I don't know of any, I don't know of any peer-reviewed major scientific theory that is any threat to my Christian faith. I celebrate it all. I sit around and watch PBS documentaries. I watch them all, every one of them. I love them. Uh, the one thing that I would say to the scientific method is that when it, or logical positivism, or whatever you want to call it, has said everything that they can ascertain about the phenomenon of being, not everything has yet been said. In other words, there's more phenomenon of being than that which can be perceived through the five physical senses. And Pascal knew this. Blaise Pascal, who, who is a true genius, I mean, you know, he's considered one of the greatest mathematical minds that's ever lived. So he certainly was not an enemy of reason, right? I mean, he's a mathematician. So he's not opposed to reason, but he had his own experience with God. And that's why he says, okay, well, remember, remember, the heart has its reasons of which reason, which he's completely respectful of reason. He employs reason. That's his day. But he says, reasons. Of which reason knows nothing. And I think most people know this, but we've been conditioned not to speak of it because we're, we're told it's not illegitimate. I mean, it's the realm of such things as love. Is, is love real? See, this is what Nietzsche and um, Marx and Freud uh, called they're called the masters of suspicion because they were all suspicious of true altruistic love as a genuine motive. Mm-hmm. They know it's all about money for much. They know it's all about sex and Nietzsche for sure. wants to say, no Christian love is nothing more than what he called slave morality. That it was just a way for the weak to manipulate the strong through guilt and things like that. I think, disagree with that. I think most people know intuitively, and that's probably the right word, that love is real. 
and that it's in that same it's that same capacity to know that love is real. It's that we call let's call it the heart because that tends to be the language. That is the same organ, but we encounter God, and so that's why come up down. You know, up inside your head is okay for certain things, and there's a time to be there, but there's also a time. Stairs into the living room, the hearth room, come into the heart room, and encounter God there. That's legitimate. Modernity will say that's illegitimate. And that that's simply a received tradition. But here's the thing. Modernity is nothing more than a tradition of critiquing all other traditions. And as such, it is a rather impoverished tradition. You don't you don't have to you don't have to put up with the arrogance of modernity that says what you experience as a living existential human in your heart is invalid. No, it's not invalid. The best things in life are found, including our experience of God. Mm. That's good. So when everything's on fire, you can listen to that. Yeah, but you know, I I very opening to the book. Perry and I were once again walking the Camino de Santiago as we are wont to do these days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that gives you a chance to really ponder and think, you know, 40 days, 500 miles, just walking, walking, walking. You, you, get, you get quiet and still and simple. And, of course, I'm also seeing all of these uh, old churches. When I say old, you know, maybe some of them, you know, 800 years old, 1,000 years old. And you realize, okay, there was a time before modernity, and it was a different kind of time. And we don't live in that time. And I thought, well, what do I want to say to people who are finding it difficult to hang on to their faith? And I reached the town, we reached the town of uh, Castro Haris, it's about 200 miles into it. And one afternoon, I sat there outside our little hotel we were staying in, on this terrace, and I, I just thought, okay, what would I want to say to people? And I outlined the mm-hmm. 11 chapters. I mean, I stuck pretty close to it. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. Talk about being all alone upside, inside. I want to talk about the grace of second naivete. And I just outlined the chapters and gave it the title, When Everything's on Fire. I, I don't know where it came I where it came from. I a secret. Maybe you can coax it out of me. I don't know. But... <laughs> But but I came up with the title, When Everything's on Fire, uh, in October of 2019. I didn't start writing really until January of 2020, but I've already got the title, When Everything's on Fire, and I'm writing, it's January and February. And then guess what? Then everything was on fire. <laughs> I thought it was on fire, but then it was really on fire. So the, the title surprised me that that it's, you know... It, <laughs> Anyway, it came in. Do you, you want to, do you want to know where the title comes from? I, I do. That was my next question. I haven't told anybody. No. Breaking news. Perry, Perry knows it, and maybe I think I told my agent. Just a little secret. Okay. It's just the three of us. There's, there, there's, there's, a, there's a Portuguese by the name of Antonio Lobo Atunes. He's really obscure in the United States. He's great. He's phenomenal. Some of his books are very well, all of his books are really pretty difficult. And I just stumbled upon him maybe 10 years ago. I never like, read like all of his stuff that's been translated. And he has a book called What Can I Do When Everything's on Fire? It's a, it's a stream of consciousness novel that is, ah, it's inscrutable. I, it, it, it's the hardest book. I don't even recommend it. It's about a, I don't even tell you what it's about. Um, but that title, I did love the title, and it just, and it, it kind of, right, what can I do when everything's on fire? And then I simplified it to when everything's on fire. And that's, yeah. I've seen some interviews in English with Antonio Lobo, he's a real curmudgeon. And, and he'll, they'll, they'll say to, where do you get your inspiration? And he'll go, I don't believe in inspiration. <laughs> you just write. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, in the acknowledgments, in the second paragraph, thanks to Antonio Lobo Atunesh for the inspiration, even though he doesn't believe in inspiration. Why, Carlos? And the 
is, is this recurring line that, that shows up over and over and over again in what can I do when everything's on fire? Why, Carlos? <laughs> I, I, I'm cracking myself up. It is funny. I love, you, I, I love that you've got an inside joke that deep into your book. That is Yeah, it's the first time I've shared it. I, I guess I'm comfortable around you, Luca, and I probably won't share that again. But that that's <laughs> it, it, all good titles are somewhat probably borrowed. I mean, the book I'm writing right now is entitled uh, Worlds. It's a book on the cross. Hmm. But I'm stealing that from C.S. Lewis, who in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's not the cross, it's a place. There's this wood that's kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a place that you travel to different worlds. So most, most good titles are somewhat borrowed, recycled, mm-hmm. stolen. Yeah, recycled. I like recycling better than stolen. Right, um, right. But whatever the source of the title for this book and the subject matter. It turned out to be a great book. You should be proud of this one. Uh, I'm going to highly recommend everyone get a copy of it. Um, BZ, thank you so much for the time. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you again. Thank you, Luke.